Um, Mitch, maybe tell us a little bit about your family and then what you do for a living. Yeah, um, so I work at a, uh, I'm the principal of a school, um, and we have about, um, it's hard to, always hard to describe my job because I work for a publishing company, a brick and mortar school, and an online school. And I'm the principal of the um, online school, but I also do some administration for the brick and mortar school, and I also do writing for the publishing company. And so um, I sort of sit in the middle of all of those, and it's actually a fun job because I like working with teachers, and I like um, um, cultivating a business, um, and I like writing and research, and I get to do a little bit of that, all of that. Um, so it's kind of a sweet, a sweet gig. Um, but spend most of my time um, either in the classroom or working with teachers um, as they're trying to not get burnt out, uh, yeah. you know, teaching. So Ethan teaches Greek, I think using your Memoria Press textbook. Julie also teaches at a classical wow. school oh, awesome. using some of that. I think you guys use some of that curriculum maybe when you were home educating. So, so I work for Memorial Press yeah. um, um, and Highlands Latin School. Uh, they're started by the same family. Um, and I work for, uh, and the online school is Memoria Academy. Um, and I wrote the Greek textbook for Memorial Press. Um, and uh, I'm working on the third, so maybe you'll get a full grammar at some point. <laughs> Uh, this isn't a sales trip for me, but I, I really like one. the grammar I wrote. I think it's I think it's good. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, Mitch, you're also married and have a daughter. Oh yeah, my life. That's yeah. the other por a big portion of my life. Um, I forgot what question you asked. Um, yeah, I married, been married for almost ten years now, um, and have a little kid. Uh, she's two, um, and she is the joy. I'll show you pictures if you ask me. Yeah, you you won't have to twist my arm, but she's pretty. She's pretty yeah. awesome. Little Sylvia, right? Yeah, Sylvia okay. Marie. Sylvia Marie. Yeah, my wife's name is Spencer, and she has a boy's name. Um, and that's good for me because I'm very bad with girls' names and just remembering them. And so when I found someone who, you know, was somewhat godly but also has a boy's name, I was like, hey, I really got to lock this down uh, <laughs> so I could actually remember her name. Yeah. That's a terrible story to tell, um, but... Um, Yep. Well, there are a lot of other stories that I wish I could get into. Mitch and I were um, remembering some events from our lives last night as we were talking. And uh, Mitch and I used to work overnights in a group home together. And I actually worked there full time and Mitch would just pick up hours. Yeah. And there was one occasion where another friend happened to be working at the same house I was. So I wanted us to, while everyone was sleeping, do a panel discussion on how to survive an overnight job as a college student. Um, but I was the only one who worked full-time overnight. But I w So I wanted to say what I wanted to say. So I wrote Mitchell a list of questions and made him Aaron. the moderator yeah. on the panel discussion so that I could talk about whatever I wanted to talk about. Well, today we're doing the reverse, where Mitch wrote a talk, and I've looked at that and created questions so that Mitch can talk about what he wants to talk about. Yeah. So we're doing the same thing, just sort of in reverse, and yeah. hopefully in a more profitable way. Yeah. Um, I made the error of posting that video on my Facebook, and I almost got fired for using work hours to make a panel discussion video. So and, I, and I learned some work ethics out of it. I mean, they kind of spoke out of two sides of their mouth because they kind of sold it as, hey, at night, you don't really have to work. Yeah, that's true. Which is like, yeah. hey, that's what, I that's what we did. Yeah, we did not work. <laughs> yeah. um, great. Well, we're talking about the Christian and the imagination. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and as these two terms come together, Mitch, you know, it's, it's maybe hard to draw a connection between them. Um, so I think the place for us to start is talking about the way that we experience the world and make sense of the experiences of our lives. So yeah. maybe, maybe you can talk to us about something that we're, we all know is true, but maybe haven't thought about as true, which is the storied world that we're in. Yeah, I think a helpful way to get at this is um, is uh, with the, an example of perception. So if you, um, like, think about that wall, for example. So, like, everyone look at the wall. If you, if you think about the wall for a second, and uh, now look back at me, um, there's a million pieces of data we could say about that wall, right? We could talk about perhaps it's drywall, it's made of gypsum. I think we get gypsum from, I think it's, you can get it from Turkey, Russia. We probably got ours from Michigan. Um, there's wood studs back there, probably. Um, you know, so we could we we can make all kinds of data, and that we can you know describe it and uh, make all kinds of observations about it. But you could probably make millions and millions of observations about it. So how do you, when you see that wall, how do you not just get overwhelmed with all the things that you could say about it? Well, you probably you have to have some sort of structure, some sort of uh, um, lens through which you see that wall. Like if you grew up in a family and your dad was a carpenter, you probably see that wall differently than I do. Um, or if you're an artist, you know, you probably see that wall as a certain thing. In other words, those things, how you were raised, how, the things you understand about gypsum, the things you understand about wood, about how a wall works or functions, that is a structure that, uh, through which you see that wall and it limits all the other things you could see about the wall, right? Um, so we're and so that's just true about the wall. Now imagine the millions of observations you could make about human life and 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 your existence. You have to see there has to be something that provides structure to all of that sense perception. There has to be something that provides some organizing principle. And for um, and for us that is story. Uh, story provides a structure through which you can make sense of the world. Uh, you know that existentially just by the nature of your existence because you are, uh, am I getting ahead of us? Uh, no, but quick pause. If uh, you say words like existentially, you oh, should define them for Absolutely. Sure. That was rude of me. Um, by existential, I just mean the, the nature of your existence. Just by the fact that you are, your life has a beginning a middle and an end. So there's a narrative structure even to your life. And, and, and when, I, when I mentioned the wall, there's a structure to how you perceive the world, right? Um, and we also tell our stories about the world to make sense of things, right? So, um, you know, if you're driving, a good example that we've discussed before is like if you're driving down the street and all of a sudden you see a car, uh, like a police officer drive by and you're like, oh, his lights were on, it was really loud, I wonder what's going on. And then you look in your back rearview mirror and you see smoke, a smoke in the smoke pillowing, or it's like, oh, he must be going to a fire. And so you had to, you, you saw two pieces of data, right? A police officer driving by with his lights on, and you saw the cluff of the, the big puff of smoke, and you had to come up with a story to make sense of those two things. Why do those two things happen in my my experience? And so you told yourself a story. Oh, there must be a fire back there, and he's running to the story. Is that true? I don't know. Maybe it is. Maybe it's not. But in order for you to make sense of that, you had to tell some sort of story. And so um, stories, uh, whether they're 
in literature uh, or their, the story of your individual life um, or the story that you were brought up in, right? The story that maybe your parents told, the way that they lived, provides some structuring to how you see the world and how you live that out. Um, and that's why stories are very enticing. Uh, stories pull you in and shape you, sometimes without even noticing it. Um, and that's why our culture can be very um, cor- uh, corrosive to our, our souls, <laughs> because there are all these stories that exist um, in our world about uh, the supremacy of money, um, the, the value of power, and what that looks like. And it's easy for us to be wrapped up in that structure, that way of seeing the world. Um, yeah, I, I, think I suppose I'm getting at the answer to your yeah. question, but at the end of the day, I think the most profound part about story is that in our understanding of what a story is, is that it provides a structure through which you make sense of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't make sense of your life and the role that you're playing in it without um, an understanding of the story that, and the role that you're playing in that story. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's helpful because the way that we navigate the world, we're telling different stories to make sense of our experience. Mm-hmm. And then we try to identify the most plausible of those stories. Yeah. And that shapes the way we respond and live. You know, so someone else in your car might say, well, actually, I know that the city's doing a citywide burning. And that explains <laughs> a book burning. the... Yeah. the we're yeah, Nazi Germany in the, the illustration. <laughs> um, and like the, the lights keep coming closer flashing lights to your car, so probably you're actually speeding and the guy's pulling you over. He's not going to go put out a fire, you know. So we can tell different stories to explain the data, and we try to adopt the most plausible one, right? Well, yeah, yeah, or the one that makes the most, and that's why we tend to be a little disappointed whenever we realize that maybe the story that we were telling ourselves is not quite right, you know. Like, for example, um, uh, you know, I once had to tell a seventh grader, you know, he thought he was really funny. Very funny, kind of a jokester. I just sort of had to sit him down and say, hey, man, you're not funny. Um, And I just need you to know that because you're, like, trying to live out this narrative of you not being funny. He was crushed. Mm -hmm. I'm not funny. Like, maybe everything he thought about himself was just wrong. Uh, And so he, and I said, hey, this is your moment to to think about yourself differently um, and not as, like, a clown, but as, you know, an engaged learner, as, like, a good son, like maybe those things need to be at the center of like the narrative that you're telling yourself. Uh, but then even like there's funny examples, you know. So I'd, I played, um, played sports in college and um, I like to think of myself as, as an athlete, or at least I was at, at one point in my life. And uh, the other day, and so, you know, when someone asks like, hey, who are you? Like, uh, you know, describe yourself. One thing I might say in talking about myself is, oh yeah, I was an athlete. Um, you know, I, 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 I like working out, or at least I, <laughs> this is funny because you're actually looking at me, you know none of this is true. <laughs> uh, you know, but I, I uh, yeah, that, that might've been a part of the story that I told other people about myself. But then I was recently reminded, uh, my wife, we woke up one morning, and I said, hey, I think I'm going to go running for today. And she just started laughing at me. <laughs> and, uh, and she didn't mean to be hurtful. It was just, obviously, I don't, I'm not a runner. Um, and uh, so the story I'd been telling about myself, when I looked in the mirror, I realized, oh, that's not true. And it was, a, it was sort of a painful reminder that I'm not, I, this, the, the, the role that I thought I was playing in the world is actually not the same role that I have now. Um, and so there's a bit, there can be a little bit of a disappointment whenever you realize that uh, the story that you've been living by 
you've had a rude awakening, and now you, you realize that maybe that was a false narrative uh, about yourself. That was a trivial example. There can obviously be more severe um, examples. But. Yeah, so then when we start talking about narratives, whether it's like a story in a book, mm-hmm. or this story, our story, the story of the events around us, I think the primary way we talk about engaging those stories is with our imaginations. Mm. So to add this next building block, what is the imagination? How would you define that? Yeah. Um, thank you for asking the question, the exact questions that I'd like you to ask, just to help like set it up. You, you know, know, I'm here for you. Always will be. <laughs> Highly <laughs> contrived questions. Um, I think you may have something to say about the definition of uh, what the imagination yeah. is. Um, I think there's a lot of ways you can get at a definition of what the imagination is, but um, I think Aristotle has a very good uh, definition for the imagination. He, he defines the imagination as a, a faculty of the mind um, by which an image appears inside of us. So a faculty of the mind whereby an image that's out there appears in, a, in, in us. And I think that's helpful because that connects, and Aristotle does this very well, um, he wrote a little little thesis on, um, on animals, um, um, and so he, he makes the case that even animals have an imagination, um, and that's because uh, the imagination plays a significant role in human action or in human activity. Like, think about uh, the fact, like, you're hungry, and you imagine what you might have in the fridge. Who knows if you have it in the fridge? You haven't looked in a while, or you didn't go to grocery shopping, but you imagine, oh, I think i I'm imagining myself eating a sandwich. And so by imagining that thing or that object being presented to you, it motivates your human activity. You go look in the fridge, you try to make a sandwich, maybe even you're a little bit hungry. So there's a connection to the things that that appear in us that are not true, or at least not true in like the touching and feeling definition of true, which is not the only definition of true. Okay. But uh, you, you imagine it, and, and then it presents an object of desire for you uh, in, in your mind, and then you move towards it. And so the imagination in that sort of system, before human activity occurs, where you're an agent and you're moving towards something, something has to first appear, and then you have to desire it. And so I think that's a good sort of placing of the imagination. Okay. So the imagination brings an image of something that either exists or not, it doesn't matter, yeah. into our minds. And, yeah, and maybe it's, it would be helpful to say that, um, what do we mean by exist? I mean, yeah, <laughs> because there are things that don't exist that are actually more real than not. Yeah. You know, like when you're reading a book, um, like Dostoevsky's um, Brothers K, Brothers Karamazov, um, that's not a real story about three brothers from Russia. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in some senses, that story is more real than the fact that it's not real um, because, of the, it, because it's, it's reducing um, something, that, an, it's an abstraction of human experience that is true. And so it's, in some sense, it's more real than the fact that it's not like, mm-hmm. I can't go find Alyosha, in, yeah. which is one of the characters in Russia. Yeah, so. or like in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Sure. It's real. We can talk about those characters as if they actually do things right. and say things. Yeah. And we can, in a sense, inhabit that story, even though we can't go to yeah. Middle the, Earth. Yeah, Middle right. Earth is more real than not real. Yeah. Uh, you know, because each one of us are on a journey to throw a ring into, <laughs> into Mount Doom, 
And that's a very, it, that's a very real story for us. Okay, so maybe this idea of the not real being more real than the real is a little bit out there, and I, that's okay. We'll, we'll keep uh, pressing in on some different I- related ideas. So when you've talked about the imagination and stories, the imagination obviously shapes the way that we see the world mm-hmm. and the stories that are told. So before we start talking about the self, as, yeah. as we are people in a world, what's, what are the kinds of stories in the kind of world that's projected for us in our culture and time. Yeah. Um, I think a helpful place to start here is actually, um, you know, our culture kinds of tell, uh, tells us that uh, um, there is no story above all story by which you can, you, know, you read your life. Uh, and, and so they say that there's no story above all stories. There's no one right story about the world that tells the story about the world and about your place in it. Um, so that's the first thing they say. The second thing is you have absolute freedom to tell your own story, to self-actualize in whatever way you want. And uh, that, is, that ultimately proves not to be true because while they, you can't, I think I've, I've tried to a little bit make the point already right now that you can't live without a story. You can't, there's too much data out there. There's too many disparate pieces, disparate pieces of information that you need some way to pull it all together to make sense of your human life. And so you have to have some sort of story that brings all of that together. Um, and so that the, the, the first premise that there is no story at all is, ends up being a complete lie. And as a result, and, and imagine if it were true, though. You know, like if Aaron and I were sitting up here and we were going to say, hey, Aaron, let's tell a story, okay? And, uh, and I said, okay, Aaron, let's tell a story together. You start. Go ahead. You want me to actually start? Yeah. Uh, once upon a time, there was a person sitting in front of a group talking. And? And they kept talking and found resolution eventually in a beautiful story told by the guy on the, the left, <laughs> from my perspective. It, yeah, that's a bad story. Uh, but uh, okay. what I'm trying to articulate is you saw Aaron's face get a little red, right? He, he was a little nervous, like his heart rate went up a little bit because he was being at. He had the utmost freedom to tell whatever story he wanted, and he did not feel bold and confident to tell his own story. He felt anxious. And, when you, and actually, if we hate little children, we'll give them that sort of freedom. We'll say, hey, in the world, you can, do whatever, you can write whatever story you want. If you hate kids, you'll do that for them. Uh, what you can actually, what's helpful for a student, for a, a kid, for a child, is to say, hey, here's the story of how this world works, and, and, and here's how you can make sense of your experience, to give them a story to make sense of that. And so our, cult, our culture, while on one hand they say, hey, you can come up with your own story, you have the ultimate freedom to, to, to write the story of your life, uh, they, they also realize that that is, that is far too anxious of a proposition, and so they supply us with all these other stories um, about how we should read ourselves in the world, stories related to the value of money, um, uh, the importance of sex, uh, the, uh, how one gets power, right? There's, you know, capital, I mean, cash plays a significant role in our lives, and there's a narrative about cash, right? Like, 
if you go to why do you go to college? You go to college so that you can get a job. Why do you get a job so that you can have money? Why do you have money so that you can you know have nice things? Well, why do you have nice things so that you can be happy? Question mark. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and or maybe that you you can set your kids up to go down that Pimrose path of destruction. Um, so there are, there's a story out there for how you should live and how you should how you deal with human suffering. Because human suffering is real. We're all human. And uh, so we know that. Um, and not just human suffering out there, but, I mean, the suffering that each one of us experience just by the, the structure of our sinful world and us living in it, the pains and anxieties we feel. And so there has to be some way to make sense of that. Um, and our culture is, is happy to give you reasons. Oh, it's, it's, it has nothing to do with, like, the brokenness of you or the systems that we're in. It has more to do with the fact that we just haven't given you enough freedom to be able to actualize in whatever way you want. We haven't been enough, we haven't been supportive enough of kids who would like to, to change their gender. <laughs> uh, we need to support that more. Um, and that would be, again, that if, if you hate children, you won't give them any stories to live by. And our culture loves children mm-hmm. in the worst way. And it gives them bad stories to live by. But all those other stories, you know, entrap you in, in, a, in a certain way. Yes. And, they, and they are partial truths. So what I hear you saying basically is that in society at large, mm. we're told you can choose whatever story you want to live out to help you self-actualize, be the true you, be who you're always going to become. Yeah. Just pick whatever story you want and go down that road until that story is no good for you anymore and just pick another one. They're all equally plausible, helpful, right. Yeah. Um, and for that reason, an overarching story, a true story of the world is just hated yeah. by everybody, right? Yeah, because if there's a true story, I mean, there's, just think about like your life. You're living in multiple stories right now. Your life has a unity to it, and we can talk about that in a second, but you know, you play, a, in other words, you play a lot of roles. You know, you may play the, you may put on the, the hat of being a dad or or mom, um, a friend, but also you yourself are a son. You're also an employee, or maybe you're a boss, or maybe you're both, depending at certain times. So there's a lot of roles that you play, and what makes sense of that, of all those disparate roles that you play? Well, the narrative of your life, and the, the, the fact that your life is a beginning, a middle, and an end. You, yourself, the self that is I, I am the thing that unifies all those roles that I play, because I play them. Um, and I have to take up all of those roles and I have to put them in some sort of order and I have to give them some sort of expression in how I live the story of my life out. And so then the question is, how, when do I value certain roles over the other? Or how do I articulate you know, um, um, how I'm going to choose to live out that role? Um, and that's where there's a lot of uh, emphasis um, or a lot of pull and tug in our culture on how to live out each one of those roles. Um, um, yeah, so then in a world of endless options for choosing a story, um, when we talk about the Bible or the story of the Bible or mm. the meta narrative of Scripture, how mm. do these claims about the Bible having a unified story, how, how does that relate to the, the way that the world offers endless stories? Yeah. Well, I, there are a lot of stories out there about again, about money, about power, about sex, about how you advance in your career, about how you find happiness. 
And all of those stories are typically partially true, um, but they also um, battle against all the other stories that exist, and they try to have a supremacy, um, and they become ultimately become a caricature. The, the Christian story, on the other hand, well, let me put it this way. It's vitally important that you find yourself as a character in that larger Christian narrative. And I think that's the biggest thing that, um, that Christians, I think, need to think about when it comes to like raising children, um, but then also how you cultivate your own imagination, um, is that there, it's vital that you play a role that God has for you in that broader story. And I think the, probably the greatest analogy to this is actually... Um, like uh, Greco-Roman mythology, okay? So every little schoolboy who grew up in the Greco-Roman world um, knew that women are dangerous because when the gods made Pandora, not only did the gods instill her with cunning and wisdom and beauty, but the gods also gave her a box filled with pain. And so every little boy being told that story about Pandora, the first woman, um, and, and according to Greek mythology, the first woman, they learned to see women as uh, beautiful, cunning, wise, but also they, they can also introduce a great amount of terror, right? Uh, and what's funny about this is that that kind of a story, is it true? No, it's not true. Um, but for every little Greek boy, it told them something true about women, uh, and about how they could see women. Um, and the, in, the Greek, in Greek mythology, they have a story for everything. They have a story for the, why bad things happen to good people. They, how you can find human happiness in the midst of a world that's filled with pain. Um, and and in, that, in Greek mythology, there's all these stories that, that, that sort of come together to provide this broad story of how you can live in the world. Um, and that's, that's Christianity. Christianity is a type of mythology, although it's not mythology in the sense that it's like not true. It's, it's mythology and it's myth in the sense that it is uh, a true story about the world that sort of permeates everything. And so as you, you know, study God's word and you see the story that he's trying to tell about the world, that story that begins in Genesis and ends in Revelation, that begins with a creative activity of God out of nothing. And the, the Greeks started the, the, the story in a similar way. Uh, in the beginning, there was chaos. And for the Greeks, it was actually the God chaos, okay? But for us, it according to Genesis, in the beginning there was chaos and God brought order out of chaos. That's the beginning of the story. And then, in the, so there was chaos and then there was order, but then there was a fall and now there's disorder again. And then in Revelation, the end of the story is he's going he's gonna to take chaos and he's going to reorder it again. And that's the large story. And all the other stories of scriptures are, are sort of bringing you in line with the history of that story. And your job is to, is to help your kids and help you as a person, a human, to, to imagine yourself as a participant in that story. Um, because if you don't, there are other stories that are going to invite you to live according to, and it's not that arc. Um, and those stories are deeply destructive. Yeah, so I think so far what we've hit is the culture world tells us there are endless stories, pick one, and mm -hmm. um, there is no 
larger story that you should tie into or mm -hmm. enter into. Mm -hmm. Just pick whatever you want. Mm -hmm. uh, but the Bible and Christians would claim, no, there is one true story of the world, and yeah. we ought to enter into that story. But right. to do so, we have to exercise our imagination and picture ourselves as the right characters yeah. in the story. Yeah. So when it comes to being a Christian and seeing ourselves in the story, how should we navigate that? And who are we in the story? Well, that's the Sunday morning sermon. Okay. So you'll I can, tell I us can later. tease you. I can yeah, tease, tease you. Tease I mean, I can answer bit. it a different way. I mean, so first of all, come back. Um, um, and we'll talk about that. I mean, that's one of my main goal. Um, in morning service is to tell that Christian story from the perspective of Luke's gospel. Um, but it might be helpful to just, you know, sort of say as a church, you know, there, there are practice, practi think about the narrative of, of like capital. Um, if you have capital, you'll be happy. Um, and if you, in order to get capital, it's okay to, um, you know, exploit other people. It's okay to, um, um, to, to get ahead, to cut and get ahead, um, right? Because capital is this thing that that will cure human suffering, money. Um, so that's that produces certain practices, right? There are certain habits that then form as a result of that narrative, right? Like um, going to work every day, uh, you know, maybe working 45 hours a week, get a little overtime. Uh, and maybe maybe there are other practices that other habits that begin to form. Like maybe you work on Saturdays in the morning instead of like being with your family. And so maybe you're turning into slightly bit more of a, a workaholic, right? And those practices, staying late, you know, working on a Saturday, you know, trying to work some overtime, you know, trying to get that overtime, trying to climb the corporate ladder. Those are all habits of life that reinforce the narrative that you're playing, that you're playing out. Uh, not that working overtime is bad or working on a Saturday. No, that's not the point. The, the, the point is that, that there are, you could put those practices in your life and that, that could entrap you in a bad narrative. On the other hand, imagine, imagine practices that uh, actually incorporate you into that larger story. Like, um, it's kind of weird that on Sundays, like, you'd wake up early and go listen to the Bible talk. That's a weird practice. It's kind of weird that... Um, you know, you would read the Bible to your family after a, after a meal. Those are, those are weird practices. Another weird practice that, you know, most churches do, I don't know if you guys do this, but is to take the Eucharist. Do you guys take the Eucharist? We do indeed. Okay. Though it goes by many names, uh, The Lord's Supper. For, yeah, yeah Lord's communion, Supper, Lord's Eucharist, Supper. Communion. Yeah, so th that's a weird practice. I mean, think about what's happening in the Lord's Supper. In the Lord's Supper, you are... Um, uh, you are being invited to be a, tele, a, a, a fellow table fellow of, of God. It's hard to see yourself as a... Um, it's hard to see yourself in, in, in a disparaging way or someone who doesn't, in some way, is not loved by God when you're sitting at his table and he's feeding you. So that, that's, a, that's just a, I mean, there are practices that we, in, uh, practices of hospitality. We, do I want to always have people in my home? And you know that I actually, I, I don't have, like, I'm, I'm very, my family has a very, um, we're, we're busy people. And so, you know, we have to schedule, like, if, if we can have people in our home once a month, that's like a good, that's like a good objective. I, I'm, I'm not as hospitable as I'd like. But that's a practice that I want to incorporate more into my life 
because I know that the type of person who is engaging in that practice is going to perceive of themselves as, as, as a certain way. It's hard to be a selfish, conniving, you know, manipulative person whenever you're trying your best to engage in a, a, a practice of hospitality, right? Of, of serving and giving to others the, the goodness out of which you have, right? It's hard to value capital to the nth degree in the way that our culture does uh, whenever you're willingly giving that to, to the church. Okay. And to the people around you. So can I like yeah. drill into two examples in sure. your life of the way that the stories we tell ourselves that we want to participate in shape our practices and then reinforce that story. Yeah. So on the hospitality example, tell me if I'm heading in the right direction. Yeah. You know a story, the true story of the God who in Jesus makes enemies friends and dines with them and offers hospitality and shares life together. Yeah. And then when... You and know, more than that, in, in, in Luke, since I'm going to preach on Luke... Uh, there are six uh, uh, banquets throughout the Gospel of Luke, and Luke puts those in there to, to, to demonstrate that Jesus is using this opportunity to eat meals with the sick and, and the sinners to, um, to usurp the expectation. Jesus just refuses to use eating with people as an opportunity to engage in social statusing. Yeah. And so that's why he invites, the, and in the Greek, Greco-Roman world, that's what it was, the rich dined with the rich, uh, the wealthy dined with, you know, other, the, the hoi poli, not, not the hoi poli, the, the, the sort of elites in society, okay? Um, it was where favors were made, right? This is, it, it's a social negotiation. Jesus refused to do that, and instead he, he invites the lame, the sick, uh, the poor, uh, people who are oppressed, and so he's using that practice, so anyway. So, to, so to, in to the point, Christian story... Yeah. The meal is not a networking opportunity, but a love sharing. Right, giving. right. So, so then that would instill certain practices. So if we're tying into that story, the Christian story, mm-hmm. then we as Christians mm-hmm. will engage in our homes in a way that's different than someone telling the story that money is all important. Like happiness is there, so I won't spend any money on other people for meals unless it will advance my money. Yeah. Right? So then how would that motivate a Christian to think about their home if they're living in the Christian story and participating in that as opposed to the capitalist money is God story? Yeah, well, I think, so as an encounter example... And it has to be brief because we're running out of time. Oh, sorry, yeah. Sorry. Uh, the, um, the, uh, just as an encounter example, I mean, I, I, a friend of mine, who's a, he's a great businessman, um, and he, I think he's trying to live a virtuous life, but he recently admitted to me that the only person who he's had in his home in the last two years to eat a meal uh, was his boss. And he said explicitly that he did that so that he, uh, just so that he could continue to build that relationship so that, you know, maybe he could eventually get a promotion. Like it was definitely a networking opportunity. And there's nothing wrong with networking. I'm not disparaging networking. Network, okay? But... Um, if your home is in the in your hospitality is merely a tool of advancement, I wonder if if the uh, if the love ethic of Christ uh, maybe hasn't quite got down into your practice. Um, and so I think using I think all you certainly can use your home for a networking sort of invitation, you know. But the prime you know a primary use of your home is to establish a family that loves God, that eats meals together. Hopefully, at times, um, but but then also welcoming in those people, refusing to play a status game. 
at home, you know, welcoming, welcoming those in um, whom God loved. Yeah, so this hospitality meal thing is just an example of one way that the Christian story shapes yeah, our Yeah, because you, you may not be able to articulate that full Christian story, but you're engaging in a practice that entraps you in that story, that, that makes, only makes sense in light of that story, and that's good. Yeah. <laughs> it's good because you can't live in every story, and it's actually vitally important that you are connected in how you live and the habits of your life. To, it, it, it's most important that that's where your life derives most of its uh, input. Yeah, so I want to tell one brief story about the way I've seen Mitchell do this that he probably wouldn't admit to. And then I have a speed round of some really fast questions for okay. you that are more about you. Okay. Um, Mitchell and I have a lot of friends who are doing their PhD work and who are really smart. And so there's a story that we can tell ourselves that for us to have value in the world, we've got to get our PhDs and be really smart. Um, and Mitch started doing a PhD at the University of Aberdeen. You know, he did this THM, really good. Mitch is smarter than me. Um, he did a PhD, but as he's like trying to tie into the Christian story of where, what we should value and what love looks like and what being a husband should look like, he had to rewrite the story, tell a different story that to, to give meaning to his life doesn't mean I have letters after my name, but that I have a healthy marriage and a family that's cared for and he was realizing his time and money was going to schoolwork that wouldn't actually give him the biblical vision of the good life, just our little subculture's vision of the good life. Yeah. So I've seen you do that. And I, I think like talking through those examples with each other, with Mitch afterwards, will help you understand what, what he's getting at with this idea of a big story and participating in it through certain practices. Yeah. So Mitch, I want to ask you a few questions. Yeah, okay. Um, what is... Uh, your favorite fiction book right now? Fiction book? Yep. Um, Crime and Punishment. Crime and Punishment. Favorite nonfiction book? Favorite nonfiction book. Um, Other than the Bible. Al Al Alistair McIntyre wrote a great book on called After Virtue. Probably okay. my favorite. It's a um, little bit philosophical. What's the least academic thing you do in your spare time? Uh, um, I watch Netflix. Okay, so you're a normal guy like the rest of us. If, if, if by normal you mean watch Netflix, then yes. Okay. Uh, what's your favorite song right now? Um, this is going to make me so unrelatable. Uh, Rachmaninoff's Second Symphony. Okay, yeah. Piano Never concert. mind. That was a bad question. <laughs> we relate to you far less now. Uh, I mean, I do like Miles Davis's album, uh, Kind of Blue. Okay. You know, that, that's one of my favorite albums. Favorite living theologian? Uh, living theologian. Um, That's a tough one. Favorite dead theologian? Uh, Augustine. Augustine. Um, you have one day off. What do you do that day? Um, I build a fire and I read by it all day. Uh, no, I, no. actually, after, uh, upon waking up and reading and drinking coffee, uh, I, I love nothing more than just like play on the floor with my child. Okay. She's pretty cute. So. What do you value most in a friend? Uh, loyalty. And who's been a role model for you? Aaron. I like that answer. <laughs> Mitch, thanks for giving us an introduction Absolutely. into the Christian imagination. He'll be preaching from the Gospel of Luke, Christian discipleship. Uh, looking forward to that. And then tomorrow night, he'll talk about how you can cultivate the imagination through literature. So I think 
that will be really helpful. I believe we have childcare this year for our Monday night. Last year we didn't do that. We're adding that this year. Um, and then if you would like to encourage Mitch, who drove through 90 mile per hour winds to get <laughs> here, um, you feel free to designate a financial gift towards Mitch that will contribute towards our speaker gift for him. But Mitch, thanks for making it up here. Looking forward to it. I'm, so yeah, let me pray for us and then we'll dismiss. Father, thank you for um, this opportunity to think about the imagination and how we um, embody the story of scripture in the way that we live. Uh, we pray that you would transform us more and more into the image of Christ as we do this. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Thanks.